You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. We turn your Bible to John chapter 15. We're in a very familiar passage this morning. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, and thank you, BP's MVPs. Yeah. Yeah. I got a preview yesterday. They sang that song to me at the BP's MVPs extravaganza. We had a good time. I was introduced to a new game, Gaga Ball. And before I'm about to baptize Lane Webb, his mother Kimberly said, I heard that Lane whipped you in Gaga Ball. That's how the Lord prepared me for that part of the service. But it was a wonderful time, and I am grateful for the parents and for the grandparents who were investing uh, in our young people, and, and Jennifer Vale, and all of those who, who serve in her ministry uh, for uh, just all that you've done. And Macy Maddox for teaching these children this hymn, this remarkable hymn that will never go away. They will cling to this hymn all the days of their life. A hymn that was motivated by Psalm 46 as Luther is writing in a, in a, in a crisis. His life's on the line. He's in hiding and he is reflecting on the goodness of God as is revealed in Psalm 46. Well, if you would, look with me in John 15. We're going to be looking at the first six verses. But in verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, that's mutual indwelling, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, there's so much to teach us here from this passage and we pray that the weak preacher would not get in the way of your plans and purposes this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who know Heather, you know that she is a Texan through and through, which is not the happiest thought on this particular day for me. <laughs> but we lived... In Kentucky for 19 years, we came to love Kentucky. And collectively, when you consider both the internship and the last two years, we've lived in Auburn for five years. And so we, we learned to love Kentucky, and we certainly love Auburn. But Texas is her heart state. It's where she was born. It's where her family is. And in 2010, her grandmother died. And she was known for growing crepe myrtles, which is the official state shrub of Texas. And so 
out of honor for her grandmother, love for her grandmother, and, and out of love for her native state, Heather cut off some of the, uh, her grandmother's own plants and brought them back to Kentucky. And she planted crepe myrtles, the state shrub of Texas, all around our house. And for a long while, uh, it was as if a bit of Texas was flourishing and appearing in Kentucky. Now, in John 14, 30, we saw that the ruler of this world is the devil. Jesus makes that clear, which means this world is not the believer's heart place. Uh, our heart place is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. But Jesus is going to tell us for those branches that abide in the vine of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, then what we can trust is a bit of heaven will visibly appear and visibly thrive in this world opposed. And as John 15, 8 makes clear, this is for the Father's glory. He says, by this, my Father is glorified, which is our purpose for our existence. Now, we are starting a new section, though John makes clear here that Jesus is continuing the conversation that began in John 13. He's just hours from the cross. And, and it appears at the end of chapter 14, they have departed from the upper room. And so they're probably in transit to the, gar uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's very possible that they are passing these, these plentiful vineyards that would have been on their way. And that's what prompts this new discussion. But John 15, 1 to 17 is really one section of Scripture, but it's broken down into two parts. We're going to look at the first part today, verses 1 to 6. We'll look at the, the second part of that starting next week. But even this first part, verses 1 to 6, can be divided into three parts. And really at the heart of this discussion is spiritual fruitfulness. Just think about this. Just hours from the cross, what is on Jesus' mind? What's on his mind is that his disciples will bear fruit for God. And by this, the Father will be glorified. And so in verses 1 to 6, emphasis on spiritual fruitfulness. And the first thing we see here in this passage is that spiritual fruitfulness requires life from the vine. Look with me in verse 1. He says, I, that is Jesus, I am the true vine. Now, the first point I think we need to consider here is that this is the last, the seventh I am statement in the Gospel of John. That is an I am statement with a predicate. So when you consider these seven I am statements, it speaks to who Jesus is. It reflects not only who he is, but what he came to do by his life, his cross, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension and his return. We first saw in John 6 that he's the bread of life. John chapter 8, he's the light of the world. In John chapter 10, he is the door for the sheep. 
John chapter 10, he's the, the good shepherd. We also saw in chapter 11 that he's the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now for the last I am statement, he says, I am the true vine. So the I am statements, if you haven't been here, take us back to Exodus 3. When, when Moses asked God, who was commissioning him, what is your name? And he says, I am that I am. And so when Jesus uses this language, he is saying, I am the God of the burning bush who revealed himself to Moses. He is equal in essence and power and glory to God. And yet we also see in this first verse that he's distinct from the Father. So he is equal to the Father, but he is distinct from the Father. And I want you to notice, he says, I am the true vine. And that word true, I think, is very important here. He's inferring that there's been a previous vine. He's also been inferring that, or inferring here, that that previous vine was not true. It wasn't faithful. It wasn't fruit producing. It didn't carry out its purpose. Now the question is, who, what vine is he referring to? Well, if you've read any from your Old Testament, you know it's Israel. In fact, uh, in Isaiah 5, here's what Isaiah the prophet writes. Isaiah 5, 1, let me sing for my beloved. But his beloved is Yahweh. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Or Jeremiah 2. I planted you, that is the Lord speaking to Israel, a choice vine. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine. Or Hosea 10, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. But the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. That is false worship. Hosea is writing at a time when Israel had apostatized. Or Psalm 10, uh, 80, verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Why then have you broken down its wall? And so the vine is clearly referring in the Old Testament to Israel. But every time, or most every time, that language is used as a metaphor for Israel. The emphasis is on its degeneracy, its fruitlessness. It had been planted by God to bear fruit for his glory, for the salvation of the nations. As we know from Genesis 12, it, that was the mandate given to Abraham and his seed. And here Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I am the substance for which all of these years I have been shadowed by Israel. He is the fruitful. He is the faithful vine. And so spiritual fruitfulness requires life from the true vine. The second thing we see in this passage, 
about spiritual fruitfulness is that it requires pruning by the vine dresser. Again, notice in the second part of verse 1, and my father. So there's distinction in the Godhead here. The, the, the father doesn't become the son. That's modalism. They are distinct persons, but one nature, one essence. My father is the vine dresser. So a vine dresser is the one who is caring for and pruning and taking care of the, the vineyard. And what is the goal of the vine dresser? We know that. It's the same goal as the vine. It's to bear fruit. It's that the vineyard would bear fruit. Now, the word fruit's imported here. In fact, we see the word fruit throughout verses 1 to 17. In fact, we see it eight times in this passage. Fruitfulness, fruit-bearing, is the essential purpose of the vineyard. I can't think of another reason for there being a vineyard except for fruitfulness. I think Paul picks up on this in Romans 7 when he says that believers are saved, get this, that we may bear fruit for God. That's why he saves you, that you might bear fruit for God. As a result, notice verse 2. Every branch in me, that is, that identifies with the vine, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, we first need to answer the question, spiritually speaking, what is he talking about when he speaks about fruit? Well, let me just give you a few thoughts on this from the New Testament. Though we recognize this cannot ever be a comprehensive answer, we wouldn't have time for that. But one of the fruits from the vine that should be evident is the fruit of worship. So Hebrews 13, 15, a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so a, a branch that is bearing fruit because it's rightly related to the vine, will bear the fruit. It doesn't produce the fruit. The vine produces the fruit. It will bear the fruit of worship and confession. That's why we baptize publicly in the local church. We are making a public confession. We are publicly acknowledging his name. And so a, a fruit, a, a branch that bears fruit will always show that fruit through worship. Corporate worship, private worship, that's the mark of a healthy branch. Another fruit that we see from the New Testament is the fruit of good works for God. Paul will pray in Colossians 1 in verse 10 that they would bear fruit in every good work. And so a healthy branch bears fruit by his or her good works. It's not the good works that save us. An apple doesn't make a tree an apple tree. An apple reflects that it's an apple tree. Our good works are the fruit of being united to the life-giving vine. Now, what are these good works? We could speak a lot about that. But when you leave here, you have been commissioned to good works. Uh, by the light, 
by the words you speak, by the gospel that you are called to proclaim. Third, the fruit of a spirit-filled character. Galatians 5, 22, 23. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the fruit of a spirit-filled character. Matthew 3, 8 also speaks about the fruit of repentance. And so, a branch that's rightly related to the vine is known by his or her repentance. These are the fruit of the New Testament that bear uh, evidence that the branch is rightly related to the vine. But how about this question? What kind of branch identified with Jesus, that is the vine, doesn't bear fruit? And the only answer can be is the nominal Christian. A, a, a person who professes to be a Christian, but in name only. Do you know that Pew Center Research estimates, or through their studies, that 64% of the United States professes to be Christian? Now, if that were really the case, by the way, it was 90% in the early 90s. So there has been a, a remarkable uh, even moving away from professing Christianity. But if 64% of the United States was truly Christian, bearing fruit, this world would be turned upside down for the gospel. Amen. There is what is known as a nominal Christian. Around two th 2016 or maybe early 2017, Danny Aiken who used to teach at Southern but is now the president of Southeastern Seminary, came and preached at chapel at Southern. And this was about a year before Billy Graham had died. And he had just had lunch with Billy Graham. And he asked uh, Dr. Graham, he said, Dr. Graham, I have heard you say on more than one occasion that you believe that 50% of the American church is, is not born again. Do you still believe that? And Billy said, no, I believe it's more than that. It's more than that. Let me just give you a case in point. Author and pastor Richard Phillips tells of meeting this longtime church member, very established in her church. In fact, she was the wife of, of a pastor. And he asked her, how are you doing? And, and she said, I'm ornery. And he was being light with her, but he said, well, orneriness is not the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, and 23. And she said, well, read that to me. And he read, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. And she said, that does not describe me at all. I see none of that in me. And that's where he got serious. And he said, well, maybe you have not been rightly united to the Christ, the vine. And maybe you need to repent and come to him in faith. And at that point, she wanted to change the subject. There are many non-fruit-bearing Christians like this lady. 
And, and Jesus is saying, and this is language that's hard to read, the vine dresser will take them away. Notice again, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, ultimately, as we're going to see in verse 6, this is referring to judgment. And we don't like to talk about judgment today. Tonight in our passage in Genesis, we're going to see judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. But there is a real judgment to come. In fact, sometimes the judgment already begins and a person identifies with Christ and identifies with his church but refuses to bow the knee, maybe tip the cap. But there's a world of difference between tipping the cap and bowing the knee. That person may increasingly be hardened and even apostatize and turn their back and become completely secular. But ultimately, he is referring here uh, to, to judgment. It's horrifying language. But there's another branch, another kind of branch that the vine dresser does not take away, but he prunes. Look with me in the second part of verse 2. And every branch that does bear fruit, every branch. So if you're a fruit-bearing branch today, this is applying to you. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. The idea of pruning is to remove everything that stunts the growth of the branch. Again, what's the vine dresser's goal? That you, the branch, bear fruit. And so his plan is to prune that, remove that which does not bear fruit. He may do this by, in whatever way he, he sees fit, to cut away the bad habits in your life that are keeping you from bearing fruit. If you are a prayerless Christian, he may give you something to pray about. But his goal is that you bear fruit and a good vine dresser will do what it takes that his branches bear fruit. Sinclair Ferguson writes about visiting a friend who, who owned a vineyard in California. And, and when he got there, he noticed that it was littered. The ground was littered like a carpet with, with, with small twigs which was the effect of the vine dresser's knives. It was clearly pruning season. But those knives were not intended to destroy, but to maximize fruit. Now, if you're like me and you know nothing about horticulture or, or gardening, uh, the idea of someone cutting off pieces of vine would seem heartless. It seemed reckless. But it's necessary for growth and fruit. Of course, a real branch doesn't feel pain, right? But the spiritual branches, that is believers, 
it does cause pain sometimes. And, and we don't always know what the vine dresser is up to. In fact, more times than not, we don't know what he's up to. So we, we might ask questions like this. Don't you care? Now think about this. We're speaking to the vine dresser who, who is concerned about our fruit, which is actually for our good. And we're saying to him, don't, don't you care? Or where are you? Why are you doing this? And here Jesus is helping us by giving us a divine perspective. But we, we don't have, our, our perspectives are so limited. We cannot even understand. We have no capacity to fully comprehend that what he's doing in the pruning may actually be removing things that will cause more ultimate pain and producing things in us that may actually promote ultimate joy and, and pleasure in God. And so he's helping us here because we're too finite to comprehend all that the infinite God, the infinite vine dresser is doing at any moment in time. But if we can just grasp this, that if you're a believer this morning and he's got his pruning knife out, it's because he loves you. Okay? If you can just grasp that, it may not take away all the pain. In fact, it probably won't, but it can give you hope in the pain. B.F. Westcott, a, a theologian in the 19th century says, everything is removed from the branch, which tends to divert the vital power from production of fruit. He's coming after your fruit. He's coming after the things that prohibit the fruit in your life. The great missionary to India, many of you know her or know about her, Amy Carmichael. She had to learn this for herself. And out of that, uh, she gave this insight, and I thought this was worth sharing, quoting, because I couldn't say it any more eloquently than her. What waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, that is the vine dresser, there is not a random stroke in it at all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep and gain to lose. And then she prayed, and may this be our prayer. Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing, of everything that is prohibiting maximum fruitfulness in my life. The reality is, if you're a fruitful Christian this morning, that's the only kind of Christian. All right? If you're a fruitful Christian, all the evidences of grace that are in your life have come from the very pruning which at the moment you would have avoided. That's important for us to remember. But the vine dresser never makes a mistake. He never makes a mistake. No cut is ever wasted. That's hopeful, even in the pain. 
those who Jesus says are not only fruitful, but are clean. Look with me in verse 3. And that brings us to the second part of this past, our third part. We've seen the spiritual fruitfulness requires the true vine. Spiritual fruitfulness requires the vine dresser. And this brings us to our responsibility in all this. Spiritual fruitfulness requires abiding by the branch. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So we saw in John 13 that to be clean means that you have been washed. Uh, Paul says it this way. He saved us not because of any righteous things we have done. He saved us because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so in regeneration, we are united by faith to Christ the pure one, the clean one, if you will, the holy one, the righteous one. And we are cleansed from our unrighteousness. Okay? That is all done by the grace of God. And that means that your salvation is secure because it in no way depends on your faithfulness or obedience or your performance. But... If the channels of this union with Jesus, by which we were made clean, if they are to remain clean, there must also be communion. And so when we are united to Christ, we could call that union. But now, Jesus begins to speak about what many have called communion. In other words, if there is to be enjoyment from the union, this requires Communion, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word abide, the Greek word is meno, is seen 10 times in verses 4 to 10. Now, why do I even mention that? Because again, he's hours from the cross. And he's, he's essentially giving his disciples the truths that they will need to hold on to in their darkest hour when he departs. He speaks about abiding. This also means that the Christian life is not just one of mere self-improvement. An unbeliever can engage in self-improvement. An unbeliever uh, can look at uh, his, uh, you know, his physique and say, I need to go to the gym. And go to the gym. Or he can he begin to watch his, his diet. An unbeliever uh, can engage in self-improvement and say, I, I need to be more educated. And so he, he takes classes or she, she reads more books. Okay? That's not what Jesus is referring to here. This essentially is the imperative of the gospel. The imperative of the gospel, above everything else, is to abide in Jesus. This is a command, abide in me. Because out of that comes the good works. Out of that comes the worship. Out of that comes, you know, the fruit of the Spirit. 
Out of that comes repentance. The command here is to abide in me. Abiding means essentially to experience the riches of the relationship we have in our union with Jesus. It's participating in a shared life. Christ in me, me in Christ. John 6, Jesus had already spoken about that in verse 57 when he says, whoever feeds on me. By the way, that's what the Lord's Supper reflects. We're feeding on Christ. Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Or Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Yet it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. And the, the life I now live by faith in the flesh, or in the flesh by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is what it means to abide. J.C. Ryle says it this way, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him. Now, that's the only way to bear fruit. We've already seen the problem with fruitless branches. To be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, using him as our fountain of life and strength and our chief companion. Essentially, true disciples abide in Christ because they're aware of their need for Christ. The Christian life is a life of doxological desperation, doxological dependence. That's the one who abides in Christ. It's not drudgery, it's delight, but it's our lifeline. Have you ever wondered this? What is the New Testament's most common way to describe a believer? Many people would say it's the word Christian. Well, the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. And all three times, in twice in Acts and once in Peter, it's a term of derision. It was the haters who used that word first to describe Christians. The most common way to describe a Christian in the New Testament is to be in Christ or to be in him. Almost 200 times. That's what Jesus is referring to here. This is referring to our union with Christ and the communion that comes with that union. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, clearly, every Christian differs in the degree of fruitfulness. Some Christians are more fruitful than other Christians. In Matthew 13, Jesus is speaking about the, the seed that fell on the good soil. And he said, some of the seed uh, landed on soil and it, and it yielded a hundredfold fruit. In other soil, it, it, it yielded a 60-fold fruit. And in other soil, it, it yielded a 30-fold fruit. But here's what all three types of soil had in common. They all bore fruit. Fruit was produced through that, that soil. And so uh, when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, he's referring to fruitfulness. It doesn't mean we can't do uh, religious things. There are a lot of religious gatherings today in the world where the gospel is not preached. 
Apart from Christ, we can draw a crowd. All right? In fact, the largest religious gathering in the United States, I would say, which is in Texas, Houston, Texas, there's no gospel there. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah, you can draw a crowd. But you cannot glorify God apart from Christ. You can sing in the choir. You can actually preach a message in a pulpit that will entertain people. You can write large sums of money. You can go be upstanding citizens in your community and make a name for yourself in your community, make an impact in the community. And Jesus is saying, apart from me, you can do nothing of enduring value. In the end, it will be like chaff. It will be like dead branches that will be gathered together and burned up in a fire. Lord, help us. And so verse 6, the final verse of this passage today, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch. Again, this is judgment. And he's not talking about the outright pagan. That goes to, that stands to figure there. He's talking about those who identify with Jesus. Judas. Judas had just left the room just a few minutes earlier. Okay? Judas had been with Jesus for three years. He would have identified as a Christ follower, a disciple of Christ. But Judas did not bear fruit for God. He was not rightly related to the vine. Okay? That's who he's referring to here. But it's referring to everyone like Judas. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Those who do not abide in Jesus will be judged. In a very real sense, I think Jesus is warning here of not paganism. That's another discussion. Christless Christianity. That's what he's warning here of. Trying to be a Christian without abiding in the Christ. Let's make this succinct. If a person is not bearing fruit, it's because that person is not abiding in Jesus. If that person does not abide in Jesus, that person has no grounds of assurance of salvation. There's no assurance that he's been born again. And so as we close here, if you are a believer here this morning, and most of you are, and one of the distinguishing marks of Lakeview Baptist Church is there is a high degree of regenerate church membership at Lakeview. It's what makes Lakeview healthy. Praise the Lord for that. But I know there are unbelievers here today. But most of you are believers. And if you're a believer, there's fruit in your life. There's fruit. The fruit of repentance, the fruit of worship, the fruit of a growing godly character, love, joy, peace, patience. You're known by these things. And when you, when you aren't known by these things, you quickly repent. Okay? But understand, there's fruit in your life, but your vine has infinite resources. So he's not content with your present fruitfulness. He wants your fruitfulness to abound, to multiply. And the present fruit that you have, he wants it more ripe. 
He wants it more healthy. And your responsibility? Abide. Abide. Now, next week, we're going to see more of what that looks like, abiding. For now, let me just say it means availing yourself faithfully, daily, to the ordinary means of grace he's given us. But that's our responsibility, to abide. From the vine dresser's perspective, now I want you to think about this. Because is it possible for a Christian to sequester off areas of his or her life from God? Yes. Okay. From the vine dresser's perspective. Now, who's the vine dresser? It's the father. From his perspective, there's no area or aspect of the branch that's outside of his pruning care. So if you think you can sequester any area off from the vine dresser, you have, you have severely, you have severely uh, misestimated this vine dresser. You, you have too low a view of him. He is after fruitfulness in every area of the branch. And he's good at what he does. So wisdom demands that I be on the same page with the vine dresser. I be on the same page with him because he's coming after fruitfulness in every area of your life. The way you think, the things you view on television, on the internet, the way you, you, you treat your spouse, the way you respond to your parents, the way you interact with your neighbors, the way you respond to disappointment or frustration He's after everything, and he's good at what he does. Finally, maybe you are fruitless this morning. You recognize, I, I, I'm not a worshiper, um, and there's no good works in me. I don't live for God's glory. I don't live for God's name, and, and I'm not loving. I'm not joyful. I don't have any peace or patience or kindness or goodness or gentleness. I'm not repentant. When I sin, everybody else is the biggest problem. I'm just a victim. Let's go back to that warning in verse 2. Those branches, he takes away. He takes away. Be warned. And recognize that warning is a grace from the vine dresser. That warning is giving you time to be rightly related to the vine. Come to the vine in repentance and faith. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance that God the Father may be glorified. As Adam and the musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. Realize that you can do that in your seat, but we have pastors here that you may want to pray with. Maybe you have questions about what it means to be rightly related to the vine. There's nothing magical or mystical about walking an aisle. But we'll be here, and maybe God is doing business with you today. Maybe you recognize, I'm a Christian, but I'm under God's pruning knife right now, and I haven't been responding well, and I need someone to pray with me. Whatever the need is this morning, won't you come as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, 
We want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.